Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by LexisNexis. Because the law is everywhere, at the heart of our lives and our discussions, this series will cover current issues that impact us daily. Our speakers for today are Sophie Majot and Jay Breacher from LexisNexis Canada. Sophie Majot has been at LexisNexis Canada for more than 23 years, and she is currently the Senior Director, Go-to-Market, Strategy and Partnerships. She is passionate about sports, having played soccer for over 35 years and coached for more than 15 years. She was also an 800-meter runner and a swimmer monitor. She obtained a master's degree in law and ADR, and her master's thesis was on sport law, and more specifically, disputes in the sports selection process. Her thesis was published in Volume 6, Number 2 of the Journal of Arbitration and Mediation in 2017. Jay Breacher is the Director of Analytical Content for LexisNexis Canada, overseeing the publication of over a 1,000 releases per year of legal textbooks, loose leafs, newsletters, and law reports. He is also the author of the athletics title for Housebury's Laws of Canada Legal Encyclopedia, published by LexisNexis Canada in April 2021. He is a competitive middle distance runner, having participated in World Masters Athletics Championships in the United States Brazil, France, Australia, South Korea, Spain, and Poland. Thank you, Sophie and Jay, for being here today and speaking about some of the legal aspects of the Olympics. Thank you very much, and thank you for having us. This is exciting to be talking about sports law right after the Beijing and, of course, the Tokyo Olympics, since both were held within the last seven months. Considering the pandemic, many athletes we heard about them have spoken about how hard the pandemic was on them. Of course, we know that training facilities were closed and many Olympic qualifying events were cancelled. But from a legal standpoint, were there other impact or concrete example of this situation? So we have selected some recent Canadian and international decisions involving athletes who hope to represent their country in Tokyo or Beijing or other important international events. So we're going to talk about uh, tribunals which have been established to resolve sports-related disputes, both in Canada and internationally. And as Sophie says, we're going to look at some recent decisions from both tribunals, uh, including some that uh, specifically were caused by the pandemic. Uh, So Sophie, why don't you start us off by talking about the Canadian regime? Yes, of course. Thanks. Uh, Yes. So in Canada, I don't know if everybody is aware that we have the Sports Dispute Resolution Centre of Canada. That was created by the federal government in the statute Physical Activity and Sports Act in uh, in 2003. So the government wanted to increase the practice of sport and the development of the Canadian sports system. So in this act, they took the opportunity to create the Sport Dispute Resolution Center, and they started their activities in 2004. The mission of the center is the following. One, to provide the sports community a national alternative dispute resolution service for sports dispute. And two, to share expertise and assistance regarding alternative dispute resolution. So these are the mission, but the main goals to realize this are the following, to ensure access to independent alternative dispute resolution solution for all participants in Canadian sports system at the national level. And this is where it is important because it's not anybody from the sports system that can go there. You really need to be at the national level to be able to ask the center for some some 
information and to have dispute resolution. Uh, so that's that's something that is very clear in their in their mandate. The other thing is about to strengthen the transparency and accountability of the national sports system and national sports organization by clarifying their responsibility to athletes, athletes, coaches, and other stakeholders. What it means is, I don't know if everybody is aware of this, but many national association and federation of sports, they don't have that many full-time employees. So it means that very often the coaches that are, are doing the selection criteria, as an, as an example, are the same that are looking at the athletes to see who's going to go. And often when the athlete is not happy, are still the, the same people that are going to decide if really the criteria were applied correctly or not. So as you can see, conflict of interest and transparency isn't that clear. So the center is really there for them to clarify their responsibility and their role and to help them create those roles internally, internally to be sure that it follows in the most uh, procedural fairness as possible. So another one, one of their goals is to ensure their independent alternative dispute resolution process are equitable for all. And that lastly, the low-cost mechanism throughout Canada should be available to athletes in both official languages. So when you look at the decisions coming and you look on their website, for on the center website, team selection accounts for the majority of the dispute brought forward to the center. I want to mention that this kind of hearings are difficult because you have a claimant, which very often is an athlete, and a respondent, which is very often a Canadian federation or association. But you also have the affected parties. If someone is winning a place in the team from an hearing, someone is losing it. So these affected parties are really important in the process and they are part of the process as well. So you can imagine that these kinds of situations are always delicate and complex. Uh, to, to facilitate this process, you can find in the 2021 Canadian Sport Dispute Resolution Code, and it was the same in the previous code as well, that section 6.10 states the following, and I'm going to read it. It says, if an athlete is a claimant in a team selection or carding dispute, the onus will be on the respondent to demonstrate that the criteria were appropriately established and that the disputed decision was made in accordance with such criteria. Once that has been established, the onus should be on the claimant to demonstrate that the claimant should have been selected or nominated to guarding in accordance with the approved criteria. Each onus shall be determined on a balance of probability. So it's really first for the, federate, the, the National Federation or Association to show that they respected the rules. And after that, it goes to the athlete to, to show that they, they, they were able to, to be selected, they should have been uh, selected. So... This is mainly what this is, the team selection is all about. The last thing that I want to mention is really about the team selection, the conflicts arise from this may happen at different stages. First, you have the development of the, selecting, uh, the selection criteria. You can imagine there is objective and subjective criteria. As a federation cannot say it's going to be our discretion to select an athlete. So there, was, there should be a balance of objective and subjective criteria right from the start. After that, there is the procedure of disclosing the selection criteria. So the delay between having the criteria um, written and the time you send them to the coaches and the athletes. I saw for some countries, and as an example, that they have some rules saying it's going to be one year before the event, it's going to be three years before the event. So they're really 
the delay is really important in when you disclose the selection criteria. Language used to send the criteria is also very important, especially in Canada where we have two languages. Uh, I remember reading a case several years ago that there was a French-speaking athlete that was waiting to receive the selection criteria. So she saw the email about the English, uh, the, the English uh, selection criteria. She's kind of waiting because she wanted to be sure she understood all the dates and everything. She was waiting for the email for the French one to come. The French email never came. So the date she was supposed to say that she was interested and participated in that event passed. So after that, she wasn't able to go. So of course, she went to the center to say, I was waiting to have more information. It wasn't clear to me. So this is the kind of thing that may happen. So the disclosure, we're talking about delay and we're talking about language as well. And of course, the selection decision itself, uh, meaning the transparency in the process, conflict of interest, criteria changing during the selection process, are all things or reasons that athlete may use to say something went wrong in the process there. So now uh, I can go on and on on this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop because it's a it's an interest, uh, interesting uh, subject to me. But let's move on to the international process. So Jay, what about the Court of Arbitration of Sport? Thank you, Sophie, and uh, I I can tell you're passionate about the subject matter. Uh, uh, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, or uh, the Court as we'll refer to it in this podcast, uh, was established by the. International Olympic Committee, or the IOC, uh, back in 1984 uh, to resolve um, international sports-related disputes through the arbitration process. Uh, it is based in Lausanne, Switzerland, which is where the IOC is based, uh, and there are um, court locations uh, in Lausanne as well as in New York City and Sydney, Australia. Uh, uh, the um, uh, court is referenced in uh, the Olympic Charter and uh, specifically Rule 61.2, uh, which states that any dispute arising on the occasion of or in connection with the Olympic Games shall be su submitted exclusively to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, and uh, it's also uh, instructive to refer to the um, court's arbitration rules. And uh, Article 1 of those rules states that uh, the purpose of these rules is to provide in the interests of athletes and of sport for the resolution by arbitration of any disputes covered by section Rule 61 of the Olympic Charter insofar as they arise during the Olympic Games or during a period of 10 days preceding the opening ceremony. And uh, that particular language will be significant in uh, one of the cases we'll be talking about a little bit later. Uh, but uh, every country has its own Olympic Federation and uh, every Olympic Federation recognizes the jurisdiction of this court uh, to resolve international sport disputes. Uh, all countries have also recognized uh, the jurisdiction of the court uh, with respect to uh, anti-doping violations or the use of performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, again, we will be uh, talking about one such case that involves that subject matter. Uh, and uh, decisions uh, from the court, uh, given that it is based in Switzerland, there is an appeal process uh, whereby the decisions can go to the Federal Supreme Court of Switzerland, 
um, such appeals um, uh, do not usually succeed, um, and uh, the decision would not be uh, made on the merits. Uh, it would most likely be decided on procedural grounds. Uh, so that gives you some background on the uh, tribunals, both domestically in Canada and internationally. And let's dive in and look at uh, some of the specific uh, recent cases uh, involving these tribunals. Uh, and Sophie, perhaps you can uh, start with one case in which uh, the circumstances of the pandemic were very much involved in uh, bringing this uh, case uh, to the center. Uh, yes, you're right. I um, We have selected this decision. In fact, uh, it's called Clay versus Gymnastic Canada. One of the reasons uh, I selected it was because the number of athletes involved in that, uh, in that MEDAR, because it wasn't an arbitration there. The center offers um, mediation, MEDARB, and arbitration. So it is a MEDARB neutral in this case. It was done by via, um, it was done by video conference uh, and the arbitrator is David Bennett. We're talking about here 12 athletes asking to overturn a decision for Gymnastic Canada, not to send them to the Pan Am Championship. That was supposed to be an Olympic selection event. So what happened there is the Pan Am Championship were postponed from 2020 to 2021. In 2020, it was supposed to be in the U.S. In, 21, in 2021, it was moved to Brazil. So And it was the last opportunity for these athletes to win a spot to compete at the Tokyo Olympics. So what happened after that? Because of the pandemic, Gymnastic Canada engaged a law firm to conduct a risk assessment to send or not to send the athlete on a basis to determine if it was too high risk, and it was. So the, 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 the legal team there said, yes, it is too high risk to send them to Brazil. Of course, the decision from Gymnastic Canada was made reluctantly and with the athlete best interest in mind. Um, Gymnastic Canada made the decision not to compete for safety reason. The arbitrator mentioned it, and I quote, Jim Can should be commended for the matter in which they have put protecting the safety of their athletes, coaches, member of Team Canada, their families, and all Canadian above all else. So the claimant request was denied in this case. Uh, of course, uh, it really impressed me when I see those kinds of situations that you have athletes, 12 athletes missing a chance to go to Tokyo, but you, we can easily understand all the rationale and the way Gymnastic Canada uh, deal with that request. So Jay, I think you have an example on the international level on the impact on the pandemic. Yes, um, the court um, heard a case uh, involving uh, two Russian mogul skiers. Uh, this was Makanov, Shuldyakov, and the Russian Olympic Committee versus the International Ski Federation. Uh, very interesting fact situation. Uh, these were two of the four top-ranked Russian mo mogul skiers. One of them had finished 25th at uh, the 2021 World Championships. So they were very much in contention to make the Olympic Games. But in order to qualify, uh, they needed to participate and gain points in a sufficient number of World Cup events. Uh, they made the decision uh, to um, compete in four such events that were to be held in the U.S. and Canada. 
in October 2021, they applied for and uh, were granted visas to be able to travel to North America uh, in order to compete in those events. In November 2021, the uh, Canadian and U.S. government uh, changed their rules with respect to uh, admission into uh, these two countries, and specifically um, only uh, individuals um, possessing uh, a uh, recognized vaccine uh, would be permitted to enter the country. Um, as these two athletes were uh, Russian citizens and Russian residents, they had uh, received the uh, uh, Russian-made Sputnik vaccine, which is not recognized uh, by the U.S. and Canadian governments. Therefore, their um, visas uh, were um, not granted, or the initial um, extending of those visas was uh, revoked. Interestingly, uh, an exemption was given to uh, certain Russian speed skaters who sought to compete in World Cup events in North America, but a similar exemption was not given to the Russian skiers. Uh, the court's decision uh, states that no reasons were given for the different treatment of these skiers. Uh, but the skiers did um, uh, uh, appeal on this basis. Uh, they ended up being uh, the third and seventh ranked on the list of next best athletes not to qualify for the Olympics. Uh, they argued that they faced discrimination in not being able to participate in these World Cup events, uh, and they said that was contrary to the sixth fundamental principle of Olympism uh, under the Olympic Charter. Uh, and they sought for two of the unused Olympic quota spots to be granted in their favor. Now, as I mentioned before in uh, referencing uh, the uh, rules of the court and um, uh, specifically uh, the arbitration rules, um, a the, the court has jurisdiction uh, for matters that arise during the Olympic Games or during a period 10 days preceding the opening ceremony. In this case, uh, the uh, court found that to be determinative in terms of uh, not having jurisdiction over this case. Specifically, they found that this dispute arose well in advance of that 10-day period before the opening ceremonies. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the uh, visa was denied in uh, November of 2021, whereas the Olympics took part in February of 2022. Uh, so uh, the um, uh, court uh, acknowledged uh, that uh, these were very challenging, difficult times uh, for an elite athlete uh, endeavoring to compete at a high level uh, in the midst of COVID. Uh, but ultimately, um, the panel did not have jurisdiction, uh, so their uh, appeal was not successful. Okay, that's interesting, but I'm curious about something. Do you think the court was reluctant to make a decision on a political issue? I think if you read between the lines, that, that's certainly a, a, a fair um, 
thing to surmise. Um, uh, the, the, the wording of the court's decision uh, suggests that um, uh, it, 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 it was uh, undoubtedly a, a situation which greatly disadvantaged these athletes. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it does seem particularly odd that the speed skaters were permitted to enter the country and not the skiers. But ultimately, um, I don't think uh, either of these um, uh, tribunals want to wade into making political decisions. Uh, and, and so uh, they, that, that may be why they um, uh, stuck to jurisdictional reasons for not, not um, being able to decide this case on the merits. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Okay, so let's move on maybe to another kind of category, which is a cases which upheld the original decision. Um, I've got an example on the Canadian side first. Um, the decision is called Lepage Farrell versus Speed Skating Canada. It is a deci- decision of November 2020 by Richard Pound. And the, I selected the decision because I'm always impressed with some uh, some athletes because of their background, because of what they do with their with their life, if, if I can say it like this. Here, the claimant is a talented short track speed skater and a medical doctor pursuing our pediatric residency at St. Justin Hospital in Montreal. So right there, it's quite an accomplishment. But here is the situation. Pandemic resulted in cancellation of many Olympic qualifying events, and the selection process could no longer be applied, giving the absence of competition. So Speed Skating Canada needed to create new methodology for the selection criteria. So after the 2020 season was cancelled, Speed Skating Canada chose to carry over the national and development teams from the ver- from the previous season. The claimant was not ranked high enough to form part of either team. So the claimant relied on results from a lower level competition. She's, she did really good, but in which many of the top athletes were not present because they were at the higher level competition. So the claimant failed to demonstrate on the balance of probab- uh, probability that, this, that Speed Skating Canada acted unreasonably in formulating a new selection policy. The arbitrator, in fact, mentioned that the fact that the selection criteria were changed in light of the pandemic does does not in itself make the changes uh, changes unreasonable. So the new the new criteria they they wanted to they attempted to reflect the original criteria as much as possible. So speed, speed skating Canada was discharged of the burden of establishing that the selection criteria were reasonable in the circumstances and correctly applied, which is why the claimant appeal was dismissed in this case. Yes, and I, I thought this was uh, this case was notable for a couple of reasons. Uh, one being that uh, the arbitrator in this case is Dick Pound, uh, uh, almost certainly the most uh, high-profile uh, Canadian member of the IOC, sure. um, yeah. uh, a past uh, vice president of the IOC, uh, the first uh, president of the World Anti-Doping Agency. Um, and the other thing that struck me is uh, that he really showed a high level of deference uh, to the governing body. Um, uh, he specifically says it's not for litigants to propose an entirely new selection process that runs contrary to those adopted by Speed Skating Canada. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's let's turn to another uh, international case decided by the court. 
Um, and this one uh, involves a uh, Jamaican uh, uh, bobsled pilot. Uh, now, many uh, Canadians uh, may remember uh, the movie Cool Runnings, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, uh, immortalized uh, the improbable uh, participation of uh, the first ever Jamaican bobsled team in the Calgary Olympics in 1988. Uh, and uh, actually, for those who uh, followed uh, the Beijing Olympics, uh, they may have noted that uh, there was, again, participation by a, a four-man bobsled team from Jamaica. It was actually the first time in 24 years, dating back to 1998, that Jamaica had participated. And uh, some of the um, athletes said that it was that movie which inspired them to want to get into bobsled, oh, nice. which is quite interesting. Um, but uh, there easily could have been um, a, uh, a female uh, a bobsled uh, competitor at these Olympics from Jamaica. And in fact, this was the subject matter of uh, the, the uh, case at issue. Uh, so uh, she was uh, uh, Jasmine Fentelor Victorian, uh, is a, a two woman bobsled pilot. Um, and uh, she was. Uh, tied in the um, international standings with a uh, French bobsled pilot uh, based on their World Cup rankings. Uh, There are eight events in uh, North America and eight events in Europe. Uh, But what happened is that the last two European events uh, were scheduled to occur on consecutive days and the first of those two events had to be canceled because of inclement weather. And uh, the uh, Federation decided uh, because it would be a disadvantage for those athletes who had only competed in Europe to only have seven competitions versus eight in North America. So given that everyone who was competing uh, in that second last competition in Europe were also registered in the last day, and that competition did, in fact, go ahead. They double-counted the points received in that last competition. So if you didn't double-count the points, the French and Jamaican uh, pilots were uh, in a dead heat. But by double-counting the points, that was the uh, decisive advantage which resulted in the French pilot um, being uh, selected to participate in the Olympics. Uh, so the Jamaican pilot brought this appeal, uh, claiming, uh, in part uh, that Jamaican athletes did not have the same opportunity to participate in European races due to financial constraints and other logistical reasons. Uh, well, the, uh, panel, uh, rejected that reasoning, noting that there were other Jamaican athletes that took part in the European circuit. They also noted that the, um, applicant herself was a dual uh, Jamaican and U.S. citizen, uh, m- making it easier for her to uh, obtain the necessary visa to compete in Europe. Uh, and ultimately, the panel uh, acknowledged that um, the results uh, of the cancelled race would have been different than the race the next day. 
And it certainly wasn't an ideal solution, but uh, it was an acceptable compromise in, in the circumstances. Uh, so the panel concluded that uh, the decision which had been made uh, by the executive committee of the governing body was neither arbitrary nor unreasonable and was within its discretionary powers. Okay, but I'm curious about something, G, uh, in this case. Why was there an issue between a French and a Jamaican competitor? Isn't it for each country to decide who will represent them? Or is it a Bobsley thing that there's a total number, eligible space or number of people to, com to, to, do, to go to, those, to the Olympics, as an example? That, that's a good question. And it is, in fact, the latter. Um, okay. Uh, that there, there are... Um, some sports where there might be a, a certain number of spots reserved for every country in the world and, and uh, every athlete who achieves those uh, standards can compete. Uh, in the case of, of bobsled, there, there is a world ranking list and um, uh, spots based on that ranking can be uh, allocated to athletes from any country. And it just so happened that um, there was a, a, a tie between a Jamaican and uh, French athlete in this case. The tie was broken by double counting one race, and so it was the jurisdiction of the um, governing body to um, decide whether the, the, how, how to handle that situation. Okay. Okay, thanks. All right. So maybe we can move on to another kind, another category that of cases, if I can say it like this, cases which overturned the original decision. The um, the decision, the Canadian decision that I have selected is Boisvert-Lacroix versus Speed Skating Canada. Uh, it's still speed skating, but it's not about a short track. Now it's about long track. Uh, it's fairly a recent decision because it's a decision from November 2021 by uh, Karine Poulin, arbitrator. Again, here, another reason why this select, I selected this decision is because of the background of the athletes. Here, we're dealing with, um, with claimants that have been, for uh, Boisvert-Lacroix, he has been member of the Canadian team for the past 15 years, and for Graham in the past seven years. So we're not talking about Junior trying to get a spot or something. It's really not about that. So it's really, uh, they submit that Speed Skating Canada did not correctly apply the selection criteria. So which is why they went to the center for it. So what happened there is the claimant both achieved the World Cup time standard during the qualifying period mentioned in the selection criteria. Unlike two others affected parties who finished in the top four of the Canadian Championship, which was another selection criteria, but they were the ones named to go to the World Cup team instead of the claimant. So the arbitrator look at uh, all the proof and compare all the different uh, selection criteria, and he considered that Speed Skating Canada did not follow his own procedure. Considering the priority of the criteria, they had to nominate the claimant to World Cup one and two, and it was not, and they were not entitled to exercise their uh, residential discretion. So the fact that the criteria were applied uniformly does not matter if they were also applied incorrectly, which is why in this case, here we're not talking about the Olympic, but the World Cup, the claim and appeals were, uh, were allowed. So as for the, oh, I, do you have any comments? Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I found that last 
part to be interesting that the um, uh, respondent uh, uh, sought to make the argument that, uh, well, the criteria was applied equally to all competitors, and therefore that that justifies it or makes it fair. And uh, the arbitrator said that that doesn't matter if you aren't uh, applying the criteria correctly. It doesn't matter if you're applying it the same way to everyone. Yeah, I, I found the same thing when I read that. I was, okay, that's interesting. You really fairness all the way uh, right from the start. Yeah, okay. So let's move on to uh, our last case now. Uh, this is another international case, and uh, it's... Uh, Uh, a case involving performance-enhancing drugs, which uh, is often the context in which you hear about uh, legal challenges uh, involving athletes uh, in Canada, of course, uh, dating back to um, uh, Ben Johnson testing positive at the Seoul Olympics, uh, the Dubbin inquiry, which uh, followed that. Uh, there's been a, a, a very high profile and spotlight put on uh, a widespread use of performance-enhancing drugs. As I mentioned before, Dick Band, uh, the Canadian, was the founding president of the World Anti-Doping Agency. Uh, and uh, this case, uh, World Athletics versus Shelby Houlihan, is of particular interest to both Sophie and I, as uh, it involves a, um, a, a world-class uh, distance runner. Um, and, in fact, uh, Shelby Houlihan uh, was uh, one of the um, leading candidates among the um, U.S. track and field team uh, to medal at the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, she had finished fourth in the 1,500 meters at the 2019 World Championships. Uh, she was affiliated with one of the top training groups in the world, Bowerman Track Club in uh, Portland, Uh, funded by Nike, and um, looked to be certainly a, a, a very serious candidate uh, to win a medal in Tokyo. Uh, however, um, um, uh, in uh, of course, the Tokyo Olympics were uh, postponed to 2021. And in 2020, uh, uh, Shelby Houlihan uh, failed a, a drug test. Um, the test uh, found that uh, she had anabolic steroids in her system, specifically nandrolone. Um, she appealed uh, this decision, um, and uh, the burden of proof fell on her as the claimant uh, to establish uh, that uh, the consumption of a banned substance was not intentional. And the standard of proof on the claimant was on a balance of probabilities. So uh, she had to provide some explanation as to why uh, she tested positive for uh, anabolic steroids and uh, nandrolone in her system. The explanation she provided is that uh, 10 hours before this uh, drug test, uh, she had... Uh, consumed a burrito from a food truck, um, uh, a pork burrito, which uh, she says uh, must have been pork containing meat from an uncastrated boar. And uh, according to the scientific evidence, which her legal team put forward, 
this could be a possible explanation for the uh, drug being found in your system. Now, uh, the first matter to be decided by the court is whether she had even had a pork burrito. Uh, according to the receipt that was put into evidence, she had ordered a beef burrito and not a pork burrito. Uh, the, the panel did find uh, that um, they, they did ex- accept the explanation that despite having ordered a beef burrito, she did, in fact, um, uh, receive and consume a pork burrito. But then when it came to the matter of uh, the contents of that burrito, uh, the uh, expert evidence um, uh, put forward by the other side uh, was um, not in Hulan's favor. Uh, An expert stated that, uh, first of all, the chance of uh, meat from entering the U.S. food supply chain to be much less than 10,000 to 1. So that certainly doesn't meet the standard of uh, a balance of probabilities. Uh, They also noted that boar meat represents only 0.33% of the U.S. pork market and does not enter the food chain of ordinary pig meat. Uh, In addition to that, they found that it was highly improbable that consuming pork products uh, in, in the U.S. supply chain would produce the elevated androgen levels uh, found in Hulan's test results. Uh, so Hulan did put forward some other uh, evidence, uh, including uh, hair analysis, uh, uh, polygraph test results, uh, but ultimately the panel found uh, that these results were insufficient in meeting the burden of proof uh, the penalty in this case was uh, a four-year ban retroactive to January 2021, which is a particularly harsh penalty. Ordinarily, a four-year ban would mean that an athlete is not uh, able to participate in one Olympic cycle. Given that these uh, Tokyo Olympics were postponed, it means that Hulan is potentially missing uh, two Olympic cycles. Now, uh, there, there has um, been speculation that uh, Houlihan is seeking to bring an appeal of this decision to the court. However, as I mentioned before, such uh, appeals are rarely successful when brought to the federal uh, court in Switzerland, and uh, any such appeal would be made on procedural grounds and not on the merits. Yes, we hear very often about these uh, these drug tests, about uh, v- uh, vitamin supplement and things like that. But about bur- a burrito, I think it's one of the first time I'm hearing about about a burrito that may be uh, the problem. But but in any case, I'm just curious. There wasn't any competition because I think the test was done December 2020 or something. How did the drug test happen? Since there wasn't any competition, like the Olympic was postponed and everything. Yes, that that's a good question and. Um, uh, a subject that uh, many people may not be aware of. Uh, uh, world-class athletes are periodically subject to random drug tests, out-of-competition drug tests. And in fact, um, uh, such athletes uh, have to provide their whereabouts at all times so that they can uh, be available for such testing. Uh, and, uh, in fact, if they, uh, th- there is, um, 
allowances made that if on a particular occasion they, uh, for uh, unforeseen reasons, were not where they said they were going to be, they might miss a test. But uh, if they miss more than a handful of such tests within a certain period of time, that can be in itself a, a, a doping violation. So uh, this was one such occasion where uh, Hulan was subjected to a random drug test she didn't know in advance. They simply showed up, um, and uh, according to her testimony, it, it occurred um, 10 hours after the uh, um, she had consumed the burrito in question. Okay. Okay, so I, we're more nearly the end of this of, of this uh, podcast episode, and um, just as a summary, I just want to mention that the pandemic was extremely disruptive, as you heard us talk about, disruptive for the Olympic selection process mainly. And we mentioned that arbitrator will permit changes to those processes so long as there is procedural fairness. And the arbitrator also mentioned, especially in in the Gymnastic Canada case, that those federation association decisions are made in extraordinary time, in extraordinary circumstances. So obviously, nobody is really gaining anything from this situation. It was also noted by different arbitrators that the parties involved behaved themselves and were really respectful. Uh, the arbitrator, Bennett, mentioned uh, the hearing itself was also notable for the collegiality displayed between the parties. And arbitrator Pound mentioned that I cannot finish at the end of the decision, he mentioned this, I cannot finish without commenting on the conduct of all who were involved in this proceeding, adding that the party were well prepared and the affected party participated with admirable restraint. And like I mentioned, the affected parties, they have a lot to lose in those kinds of hearings. So it's really well to see that even if the stakes are high and the circumstances extreme, it just wasn't easy. It wasn't an easy situation for anyone involved. Yes. And it struck me as well that Uh, these arbitrators and arbitration panels were uh, very cognizant of uh, the unique and very difficult circumstances created by the pandemic. Uh, Sophie, you referenced the gymnastics decision being uh, 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 a a situation that occurred uh, in extraordinary circumstances. Uh, The bobsled Uh, decision made uh, reference to an acceptable compromise in exceptional circumstances. Uh, The uh, uh, Russian mogul skier decision talked about how these are challenging and difficult times. Um, So I think there there was a real understanding by these decision makers that um, very uh, difficult circumstances were created uh, by the pandemic. Um, it, it wasn't always an ideal solution that could be uh, made by the uh, governing sport federations, uh, but uh, if they followed um, uh, their own rules, if they uh, observed procedural fairness and a reasonable exercise of their discretion, then the uh, arbitrator or panel was much more likely to show deference to those decisions. Agreed. All right. Well, um, thank you uh, very much uh, uh, um, to our audience for uh, listening along. And um, uh, we hope if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, you will listen to other uh, podcasts in the LexisNexis Canada uh, Legal Voices podcast series. Thank you. 
Thank you, Sophie and Jay. Thank you for joining us today. For more information on athletics law and ADR, please see our Housbury's Laws of Canada Athletics Volume and Housbury's Laws of Canada Alternative Dispute Resolution Volume. You can find both of these available on our LexisNexis eStore at lexisnexis.ca/store.